Hello, I'm Mark Abizade from the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. Back in March, we met with Ralph Hotchkiss, a renowned disability rights activist, engineer, and co-founder of the Whirlwind Wheelchair Project based here in Berkeley. The nonprofit works with local wheelchair riders and mechanics around the world to design and construct durable chairs that really bring riders back into society in ways that standard U.S. and European chairs don't allow because of their poor design, which severely limit people's mobility. Mr. Hotchkiss himself began riding a wheelchair following a motorcycle accident in 1966 when he was 18. He very quickly discovered the common flaws and hazards built into standard wheelchairs, such as weak frames prone to fractures, folding cross braces that break in half, and front wheelbases that are too short, causing the chairs to tip over forward, commonly leading to bruises and broken bones. Mr. Hotchkiss began his work in late 1979 when he went to Nicaragua and met with four boys who shared an old wheelchair that they had reinforced so it can be ridden on rough cobblestone roads common in their country. Since then, he's traveled throughout Latin America, Asia, East Africa, the Near East, and other regions, observing how locals were repairing their substandard wheelchairs, sharing some of his own ideas, and spreading them to other wheelchair riders in the network. This is our conversation. You first got started with this project in Nicaragua, and you just got back from Nicaragua. Yes. How did it start, and what were you doing there most recently? So I was sent down by Ed Roberts, who was head of rehabilitation in the state of California and who was one of the first uh, students here at UC Berkeley with a significant disability. And um, he said, i got to get down there. There are a whole lot of people with broken wheelchairs. So I gathered up all the parts and and an assortment of tools and went down with a handful of other Berkeley wheelchair riders. And sure enough, there were broken wheelchairs everywhere. And those people who could get their wheelchairs up and running typically were sharing several people to one wheelchair. And And we're talking about 1979 right now? Yes. Okay. Yes, end of 79, early 80. And... And we found very interesting people and uh, kind of sad wheelchairs. The typical wheelchair was a throwaway hospital chair from U.S. or Europe. And those chairs, well, they might be fine on a flat, flat floor. Take them out on Nicaraguan Aruquin, the, the cobblestones that are throughout the country, and those chairs would last just a few weeks, and they'd, they'd have a major failure the kind of failure that the Americans would call beyond repair, got to buy a new one. But when they broke down these hospital chairs, the mechanics there would not throw them away. They would fix them. They would reinforce them. They'd figure out why they broke. What was the stupid reason that they weren't anywhere near as strong as a bicycle of 100 years ago? And the reason primarily was they were not engineered. They were not made by... um, master mechanics like the ones in Nicaragua who were trying to fix them. So they would reinforce them and, and then um, fix the other side of the chair. Say one side of the chair broke, one front wheel broke clear off the chair. They would reinforce that one as they repaired it, make it much stronger than it had been. Then they would reinforce the one that hadn't broken yet so that it wouldn't break in the future. Um, one chair that four teenage boys were sharing had 20 fractures, 20 major fractures in its frame, and every one had been reinforced during its repair, and the other side had been reinforced as well. The whole frame had been 
redesigned and taken over most of the errors that the American manufacturer had made in, in manufacturing it, in designing it, if you could call that even design. So you went down there and you found that they themselves were reinforcing the chairs. They were, they were re-engineering re the chairs completely so that they would actually last. And so what kind of ideas did that give you? Well, um, there were numerous better reinforcements. I've been doing the same thing on my chair at that point for four, 13 years. I've been writing since 66. And my, my first chair lasted half a block in the streets of Chicago. Uh, hit a crack in the sidewalk, smashed one of the front wheels. It was beyond repair, said the manufacturer. I had to be dragged back to the hospital. And from that point on, I was repairing, reinforcing, re-engineering the chair so that it would actually more or less work as well as my bicycle that I had ridden for many years over railroad tracks every single day um, with, no, with virtually no problem. The chair that these four teenagers had uh, was so nicely reinforced that I could absorb some of the some of the understanding of the of the flow of the forces through the chair when you ram into a curb, mm -hmm. or go over or go over miles and miles of very large rounded cobblestones at top speed, which they did every day. Because you know, how else are they going to get to school or work? also going to pick up their kids, all those things. Um, they, they were doing it. By the time I went to Nicaragua in 79, I was writing, I was way beyond the first chair that I got in Chicago in 66. Mm -hmm. I was, at that point, I was riding a homemade four-wheel drive, manually propelled folding wheelchair. Front wheels were omnidirectional. They, would, they were powered by bicycle chains from the rear wheels. It would go backwards through snow and up high curbs. They they were the, these uh, Nicaraguan kids were very interested in my chair because I could go through stuff that they could <laughs> e not even dream of going through. But one of them looked up, looked my chair up and down, and said, "That very interesting, but it's going to break there, there, and there." <laughs> Did it? It already had, <laughs> and I had fixed it, but not well enough. Um, how much of a part did? Did the, a monopoly over the the manufacturing of the chairs play in uh, them, you know, being held back as far as technology? Because I, I know during that period it was uh, Everest and Jennings who really controlled mind share of um, of the wheel, that, of wheelchairs. That was true um, from about 1950 through the middle until about the middle 80s. Um, it. Its control was broken in 1979 by a Justice Department antitrust suit in which their anti-competitive activities um, in keeping foreign competition out of the U.S. were were exposed, challenged, and and through a consent decree they swore they had never done anything wrong but promised never to do it again. And within a couple of years, there were dozens of new manufacturers in the U.S. money poured into the field. People were, were, were very anxious to make chairs that were lighter, better, and stronger all at the same time, and did very well. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable how a company whose purpose is to be able to help people who require wheelchairs, but through its monopoly, it was doing the exact opposite by... The problem is, is the help, help people 
part of it. Um, it's the, the custom of pity and fear of disability that keeps people from dealing with it in a serious way. Um, helping people is cool, but it doesn't necessarily solve really hard problems. Uh, you know, being nice to them and patting them on the head is cool too, but it doesn't solve the problems. People are just kind of given a wheelchair and forgotten about her, or maybe allowed to, to have a little bit of mobility, but not encouraged to get out, go to school, get a job, um, fight for political office, demonstrate, all those things. How many disabled people were there in the, in the 1900s in the U.S. doing that? Some, some. Um, toward the end, a lot. But at the beginning, very, very few. And, and thus, wheelchairs were kind of accepted as they became, as they had been, say, in the 1940s. They were, they're still accepted today in that form. The primary, the most common wheelchair is the hospital, what we call the hospital box. And very short wheelbase, a folding frame, so it doesn't take much space when you're not using it. But it's not an outdoor capable chair, not even close. And if people had been working really seriously on that, progress would have happened sooner. The, the monopoly kept small manufacturers f out of the business from, again, 1950 to the 80s. And that definitely slowed things down. But I think that the core of the slow motion of the development of the wheelchair is that there was a shortage of people who really understood getting out and living independently and and being a competitive worker. Mm -hmm. um, and I wouldn't say in spite of your disability, I would say especially because of your disability. If you got a disability, you better, you better get out there and do well or you're really gonna be stuck. Right, there's an extra motivation there. Extra motivation. Right, but I mean, exactly. But that, I mean, that's what I'm saying about the corporation not really seeing people who require wheelchairs as full human beings, as mm -hmm. people who really belong in society. But Yeah, now, the beginning of that company, Everest was a wheelchair rider, injured in 1918 in a mine, mining cave-in, mm -hmm. paraplegic, um, spinal cord injury, and, and he wanted to make a major step forward from the, the few very heavy steel chairs that were there at the time and the more common big wooden chairs with large front wheels and a single or double rear caster that were the more popular chairs until the 50s. He, he wanted to make real progress and he did. And their chair was what became the standard hospital chair. Um, but for the 1930s it was a great a great advance. Mm -hmm. The sons of Jennings um, appear from what they did with their designs f in, during the 50s and 60s to have been at least as interested in, in just cutting costs as in making significant usability or mobility ad advances. So they they did several things that weakened the chair significantly. My failure in 66 was due to their 1958 cheapening of the front fork. 
1980, you went to Nicaragua. You saw how they reinforced the chair. You got some ideas. And over the years, you built kind of a network all across the world in Latin America. As best we could, yeah. We As found people in 40 countries who were ready, willing, and willing to build their own chairs. Um, there was, in 1981, the beginning of the... Um, Disabled People International, a worldwide organization of disabled activists uh -huh. of all disabilities together, from blind people to to, dis, to wheelchair riders and everything in between, and and they were a goldmine of of good ideas. People would come in with their own inventions to their conventions, um, and of people who just wanted to get started and and uh, or already had gotten started on their own. So it was, so the it wasn't that we started it either. Really, we just went around. I mean, I was a, a gringo, lucky enough to be able to get airplane tickets and, and visas. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was because I had a U.S. passport that enabled. I mean, m many of these people basically were prohibited from making the visits that I made across boundaries or from segments of the world to other segments of the world. Right, you worked kind of as a messenger, organizer to, messenger, to bring the ideas. Right. And stealing good ideas and passing them on, testing right. them here. And you know, you said something interesting earlier about how, in in this sort of, you know, market-based culture in the U.S., something breaks, the you know, you throw it away. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of usually what you see around is when something goes bad. Well, you know, people don't really try to fix stuff anymore. They just, you know, things are inexpensive. They throw mm -hmm. them away. In a lot of other countries, they don't have, you know the luxury of just being able to throw something away if it breaks and get a new one. I mean, they have their force really to be more creative. And thus they learn as well a lot more from the old technology than than they would if they threw it away. Right. Taking it apart and fixing it, that's how I learn most of what I know. You were, we were talking a little bit earlier, I think before we were recording, about how the um, how these old standard wheel uh, wheelchair has that problem where it tips over forward, yes. where you fall over forward. Yes. And then then came the solution of extending the front wheelbase. Mm -hmm. and, and that required completely redesigning the footrest to get the feet out of the way of the swiveling of the front wheels. Right, so it was, it was that design, but it was also the wheels themselves that you found a solution, you mm -hmm. discovered the solution actually in Zimbabwe. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Can you this, talk about that? Here it is, here's the Zimbabwe wheel. There's nothing in the sides, they're like, if you cut the tire in half, on, on one, cut one side in half and open it up, it looks like an hourglass mm -hmm. of rubber. There's, um, that makes the middle nice and solid. It will, it will roll easily on your perfect flat floor here. But once you're in sand, the soft edges take contact the ground and keep you from sinking. Uh huh. And so now these are used all over the world. I wish they were. Um, they're used in in certain segments all around the world, in certain locations. But you've introduced these ideas to the uh, different places. Yes, yes. Different. We've, done, we've done our be best to spread this Zimbabwe technology, and there are a dozen countries where, where they're widely used now, and a few others where there are several. What are some of the other ideas in some of the other countries that, uh, that uh, you've shared with uh, others um, in the network? Th this break. It's uh -huh. derived from German technology. It's a handle that actuates a, a lever that digs well into uh, the oh digs well into the pneumatic tire. This is a standard bicycle mountain bike tire. Uh -huh. Gave more clearance between the lever and the tire 
if the if the lever when the brake is off if the lever isn't far from the tire you can you can hurt your hurt your fingers while you're pushing on the tire itself mm -hmm. because th there's not room under the brake I once ripped a whole thumbnail off for example Ooh. on an Everson Jennings wow. because they only gave about a half an inch or five eighths a three quarters inch of clearance less than three quarters between the tire and the brake actuator. It didn't move far enough away. How long did they make that model for? Before they still they... do. Are you kidding? That's the standard, the standard brake on all hospital chairs, virtually all hospital chairs worldwide because they set the, they set the, the and that's how, that's, that's, that's what, that's what you get by just caring for people, not working for them. That's un that's unbelievable. Even with that safety flaw, that hazard. That's that a disastrous safety flaw. Yeah. And not as disastrous as falling forward because it doesn't break your femur and give you a, a fractured skull. But nevertheless, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Nevertheless, it's it's just it 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 drives us crazy. Every time when there's another injury, and we have footrest issues that we'd like to make better. Our footrest is already way ahead of most of the Western ones. I lost a toe to a Western footrest. You're kidding. Fifteen years ago, yeah. But um, how did that happen? I just nudged against a door jam, a door frame rather. And it was exposed. My toe, my toe was was my front bumper, and that's true with almost every chair on the U.S. market. Wow. Your so toes, your, your, your toes your are toe the just first. Hang, thing. Just hang over the yeah, edge yeah, of the right. And so it just chopped off my toe. I found a doctor who sewed it back on. It's just fine, but. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I kept it in the refrigerator for f four hours until I found that doctor. So what are some of the other flaws of the standard models? Oh boy, where do I start? Yeah, uh, uh, did we... Did the, we... the folding cross frames breaks in half, how about that? And they need a, a certain level of strength in their cross braces. And um, a lot of them don't have it. Um, it's much better than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago when most of them didn't have the strength to, to bounce down high curbs repeatedly every day without bending and, and or fracturing that X-blade brace under the seat. The whole chair would fall in half. Wow. And yeah, I had that happen. Many of my friends have had that happen. Um, there, there are wheelchair standards now that many of us have worked together to fight for, and some of the industry has been good fighting for them too, the stronger little parts, new little parts of the industry that came in and after the antitrust settled, settlement broke up the monopoly. Ooh, there were some good mechanics who jumped into the field and wheelchair riders um, who started these, these new companies. Um, so we have new standards. The chairs are required to run over 200,000 bumps with a 100 kilogram, 220 pound dummy or 250 pound dummy in the chair. But it doesn't also doesn't necessarily cover most of the cheaper chairs, the hospital style chairs. And those are ones that get oh. thrown away and then donated to the to the to the South. If you're an American and you buy a, a, an inexpensive chair for Granny, and then Granny, after a while, um, becomes rehabilitated or passes on, then then you have a choice. You can either give the gar garbage man a, man an extra five or ten bucks to haul it away. Or you can donate it to somebody who gives it away south of the border and take a four hundred dollar deduction on your income tax. What well, do you think people do? 
but a whole lot of broken chairs get sent south. They're not an appropriate chair for for off-road, for for living for living in, independently in a in a small town in 80% of the world where they don't have much pavement. So tell me about some of the shops in, that you have in, uh, in different regions. Um, first was Nicaragua, Mexico, eventually most of Central America. Um, later on, late 80s, it was South America, East Africa mostly. Um, first introduction was Zimbabwe, then Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Philippines was early. They they were our teachers, really. Tried in Fiji, did a thorough training, had a really strong local group, but it was kind of shot down by by a pre-existing manufacturer of wheelchairs made out of rebar, <laughs> solid, <laughs> the most incredibly unrideable chairs I've ever encountered in my life. But the, they were they were being manufactured in Fiji by the Red Cross, and the Red Cross had, had all the power, political power. Then Southeast Asia, we found some good places to build. Um, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, China was difficult. And, and then, then a little bit in the Near East, Palestine. Palestine was very active in the last half of the 90s. So tell me about the one in Palestine. So it was a network, it was an organization of disabled folks. Palestine was probably the best off country in which I've worked as far as they were well developed, they were technology, technologically far advanced, um, but they still needed lower cost chairs and um, there was an organization of disabled folks who also wanted very strong chairs, they were wrecking, wrecking the, the chairs that they had and, and so it was organized initially in Ramallah not far from Jerusalem, and then ch their local chapters in Gaza and Nablus joined in, and we ended up having three factories, each one specializing in certain parts of the chair, and all three of them assembling independently. And that worked quite well for a while, though there were occasional delays getting through the checkpoints to carry stuff, especially from Gaza to the other two shops, or vice versa. And um, This was during the 90s? 90s, yep. And late in the 90s, early in the 2000s, they, the things kind of ground to a halt because they were having so much trouble bringing... We had Israeli um, sources of, of many of the materials, um, which meant that our, our drivers had to go through the checkpoints back and forth. And um, there was a very strong organization of disabled folks in Israel that was um, making the connections for us to get our parts, our parts, some of which were unavailable, certain bearing sizes and tubing diameters and so on, uh, unavailable in, in um, Palestine. And so things kind of fell apart. Too bad, it was a, it was a pretty active group and a, and a vibrant group, I would say. And they, they also, were providing us with with a string of very very good ideas. As far as the number of people who require wheelchairs but don't have access to them, what's your estimate globally? Um, the the current number is accepted number is fifty million. Okay, fifty million people. Maybe twenty twenty years ago or so, mm -hmm. it used to be about twenty million. That's right. 
Okay, why has it risen so dramatically, and is it just because of... Um, um, people are recognizing more, more need. Um, for example, in the U.S., there's one wheelchair roughly for every 200 people. In England, there's one wheelchair for every 100 people. Why is that? Because they have socialized medicine, and people who need them get them because they recognize the, the part-time use of a wheelchair as a valid... For example, if you're an amputee and you walk on, uh, on prosthesis and you have trouble, help, um, injury trouble with your, with your missing, with the end of your missing limb interacting with the prosthesis, for example, it's great to have a wheelchair as backup. And in fact, um, many, many amputees keep a spare wheelchair for their whole lives, just for whenever they might happen to hurt themselves. How many of these people, if you look globally, are people who require wheelchairs because of an illness, or versus, for example, an accident, versus something like a war? Something I, d a I, I don't know. Um, even in war, the injuries are most often, are, are probably still most often not from the war itself. Um, one of the biggest sources of spinal cord injury, for example, is, is being a pedestrian or a rider in a car, a pedestrian who's hit by a car. I don't really know what the breakdown is that way. I've, I've seen various numbers, but they, they're not very consistent. Right. But, I mean, is it hard, for example, I mean, we, we talked about, um, before we were recording this, we talked about uh, your friend Salam from from Iraq, who came here a little mm -hmm. after 2003. Right, um, and he's um, you know very creative and in, in, in his designs. Very creative. To go back to to him, you told me a little bit how he wanted to start one of these centers back in Iraq, but something unfortunate happened with his brother, who was going to be his partner, and it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. But, but how much would that have contributed? I mean, something it, related to the war happened to his brother. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Then that, that's just compounding just how tragic the situation, how war yeah. is really making the situation even more tragic. But I mean, how much does a, a war, or if we use the 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 example in Palestine, I was reminded about um, after the after all those protests start happening in Palestine, Gaza, and the West Bank after the the, the Jerusalem announcement late last year, one of the protesters who was in Gaza, he was a, a man who uses a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any legs because he lost his legs during one of the previous Israeli invasions into Gaza, and he mm -hmm. was going to plant a flag near, near the, you know, the fence that the, uh, you know, how, how Gaza's kind of caged off, and he was climbing. Yeah, I know that. They, I know that that is probably the north, the north, the north gate. Right, right. I and he was all too well, having right. passed it many times. And he was shot dead there. He was shot dead by by the Israeli the man who who was already had his couldn't walk because he was yeah right. And what kind of threat was he? Right, exactly. But I mean, the point is, is he was is how really in, heavily armed in this in in these regions that are constantly subjected to war and and, and aggression. How much does that also contribute to people uh, uh, having disabilities? Okay, it does. It contributes a lot, but not not probably not as much from the injuries in war as from the the destruction of the medical care systems that comes with war and an uh, increase in automobile injuries that comes with 
lack of law and order on the streets or, or people having to drive crazy because they, they, because they're at great risk. So um, it's everything associated with just the sort of the, the, the panic yeah. and, and I guess the falling apart or the collapse of infrastructure and... The infrastructure, the health infrastructure. Because, for example, spinal cord injury, when I was injured, um, something like three-quarters of the quadriplegics in the U.S. would be dead soon and some significant percentage of the paraplegics as well, quadriplegic being neck and neck and up and paraplegic being all below neck. Uh-huh. Um, and, and now there are, what, about three times as many quadriplegics as there were then, but the injury rate is the same, hasn't changed much. In fact, it's down a little bit because we have seat belts now. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, but but it's much higher because the quad, quadriplegics are surviving now in the state at a much much higher rate. So so medical care is critical to the survival of a lot of people with significant potential disabilities with with with, with especially certain kinds of injuries. Spinal cord injury is a classic one. People with spinal cord injury, complete spinal cord injury, pretty much didn't survive before the Second World War. That was when the antibiotics became available and that made the difference. They could survive their early pressure sores, bed sores they called them, that came from having limited or no sensation in parts of their body and and not being moved enough to keep the blood flow from being blocked off just by the pressure of the bed against their skin. Let's say you were like a mega lobbyist and you could control Congress and make (laughs) them do whatever you wanted to do. What would you do as far as... Um, you know, trying to get them to make uh, just life more inclusive for people with disabilities or wheelchairs in, in particular? Um, integration into public schools is, is the bottom, the, the beginning of, of next generation's inclusion. And, and, and we've, had n- we've had some inclusion into grade schools, for example, of kids with significant disabilities. And and that's given us an incredible advance in attitudes of kids now in college, or or and and beyond. And we did that with only with only what five or ten percent of real integration into into grade schools, not not a whole lot. Most of it most of it was like where my kids went to school in Oakland. They had a separate classroom in a different building. Um, next to the kindergarten that they called their special ed center and most of the kids spent most of their time there were integrated just a little bit and but it's gotten better and it's getting better but but with just a little bit of integration we got an an incredible attitude shift well there are a lot of other things like changes in just historical changes progress so then actually let's let's finish up the first question about Nicaragua where you got started and then you just came back from Nicaragua. So mm-hmm. what were you doing there most recently? And then the last thing I'll ask you is um, about your next initiative. Well, um, just for a start, I'm happily remarried <laughs> to the woman who was one of the three mechanics in the very first shop and who taught me to sew and I taught her to weld and so on, and she's been building chairs, fixing chairs ever since. In Nicaragua? Yeah, and she's probably my, my, my uh, toughest critic of chair design. 
not only can she break everything I, I do, because she rides much faster over these cobblestone stones than I can, and she's always having to stop every block to wait for me um, as I go as fast as I can. But she's also a very good a analyst and critic of of the ergonomics of wheelchair design changes as well as as well as their strength. So as I, I, when I'm there, I live with her. Okay. And when she's here, she lives with me. Okay. Yeah. So we so we always meet at her house every week. There's a there's a meeting of old old disabled radicals, <laughs> Nicaraguan revolucionarios. Their organization, interestingly, was originally funded in 1981 by USAID, and their proposals said this is the Center for Independent Living of Managua, Nicaragua. And they were funded steadily through 1984 or so, until it w became known by the then Reagan, not Carter, connected um, staff at the embassy that their real name was Centro de Revolucionarios Deshabilitados Che Guevara. And they lost their funding, but the but the Swedes then were ready to take over and and and, and fund them through the rest of the century. So she has a meeting of of some of the remnants of that group every week in her house. All of them do their own repairs, and all of them are very critical of everything we've ever come up with. And and so we were working with them. We were trying out several new new ideas for for the brakes. A lot of a lot of good chair design is not in the whole chair, it's in the little details. Like the rear hub, we've been through at least 12 different kinds of rear hubs. So then what is your next big initiative? To, to try and bring back more small shops. In, nine, in the year 2000, a, a huge initiative began in which philanthropists started buying chairs and giving them away in developing countries. And that was a mixed blessing for us. Yes, it's great to have more chairs. We, you know, we, we lack 50 million we're never gonna make. We've only made 100,000 in our, related to our project. Maybe we've in, influenced more, but we've, that's all we, our groups have ever made. And so great to have more chairs, but the chairs they, they were giving away were almost in, exclusively hospital-style chairs from designed in the 50s, 40s which were the same chair that broke in half a block when I first received one in 66, which were made out of parts that could not be bought in developing countries, could not be bought, they were not available. And so unless, unless you find a Nicaraguan blacksmith who can invent you a new footrest or front fork on the spot, when your chair breaks down, there's nothing you can do. You can't get a replacement from the people who came once and, and, and gave away a thousand chairs and then disappeared for five years to, be, to return who knows when. And who, when they gave away that thousand chairs, put the local wheelchair shop out of business. Because until the chairs all started breaking down, which might, might take a, a whole six months, uh, there would be no business at all. And by then, the shop was belly up happen in numerous countries. So uh, so due to this great improvement, a lot of our smaller shops or the ones that we knew of are belly up. And we would like to to make to to adapt our technology to be 
so damn cheap that we can compete with the Chinese prices, which are quite low, and the efficiency and quality of Chinese manufacture. I mean, th these are well-made chairs of n not so not very good designs. But we would like to be able to make chairs locally. One, so that the chairs, so there's no pr more pride in the chairs and people take better care of them and they last longer. Two, so that the repair parts are all available right, right there in town. And so the chairs are designed so that even if you can't get the spare parts, if the, your shop has gone belly up, you can go to the local blacksmith and bingo, they'll, they'll, they'll make you one while you wait. And that's most important because that's the only way to get repairs. That's the only way people will have consistent, sustainable transportation and, and, and live independently for their whole lives. Right. You get a wheelchair, it better last you one lifetime. If we can meet this challenge, then chairs will be significantly cheaper for the user. If you, if you look at, it doesn't matter what the chair costs nearly as much as what it costs to run each, to operate a chair for each year, uh -huh. depreciating the, the chair over, instead of over six months, over, over you know, 15 years. Um, right there, you've saved a fortune if you f can find some way to pay for it up, up front. And the availability and cost of any replacement part you might need, critical, critical. So, so we're just so we're looking at that bottom line to the user, not to the donor, but to the user. And we've actually found a few users now. The U.S. Mormons are the biggest buyers of chairs in the world of wheelchairs. Well, you know they have a they, they have people in every, almost every country trying to trying to convert people. And among those people is typically a retired couple that stays for two years in each country. And those people are in charge of wheelchairs, among other things, among many other things. And some of them are dead serious and agree with us in so many ways. And they've been pushing back home to really deal with the, that bottom line. They're the ones who see all the broken chairs. People come to them because they gave the chair away. And you know what are they going to do when it doesn't work anymore? And that concludes our conversation with Ralph Hotchkiss, the co-founder of Whirlwind Wheelchair, based here in Berkeley, California. If you're interested in learning more about Ralph's work, visit the Whirlwind Wheelchair website at whirlwindwheelchair.org. You can also find a profile about Ralph on our website at hawesinstitute.berkeley.edu. We'll also have links to these sites in the description field of the audio file page below at soundcloud.com forward slash Institute. Thank you for listening.